Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. My name is Emma and I am your podcast host. For those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. And for those of you who have been following this podcast since its infancy in 2020, 20. Welcome back. There has been a little bit of a break, but I am back now with some more podcast episodes. And as I'm making new choices in my life, I realise that we are very much influenced by the choices that we make. So I thought the theme of this year should be about choice. And each of my podcast guests will be explaining the choices that they have taken and those that have been made for them that have allowed them to move through life and get to the point at which they are now. It is a podcast to inspire you to make your own choices, perhaps even to question where you are now and perhaps question whether you need to make some new choices. And to make those choices, put the right questions in front of yourself. And I'm hoping that my podcast guests that I will be having on the show this year will help you with that process. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to my first guest of 2023. Her name is Shoba Das, and she has had a very, very colourful and interesting career including growing up in India, leaving for America, coming to the UK, and now in a new cycle back in India, building her own home with her husband. Please feel free to subscribe to my newsletter, which will then inform you each time a new podcast episode comes out. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. We are now in 2023 and finally I've got my act together and the podcast will be flowing once more. Thank you for sticking around and I hope you enjoy this year's theme, which is all about choice. Because all of us make choices. They're made for us, they're made by us. And it's a question of how these choices have defined us. What has influenced us to either sit with these choices or in fact, make new ones to move forward or away from what has possibly defined us in our life for too long. Today, I have met up with Shoba Das, who I first met in Waterloo when I had my bookshop. And she has just come back from India and I've had the opportunity to catch up with her and we're just about to go for a walk and a talk around the local path. So hello, Shoba. Hello, Emma. In fact, uh, you prefer to be called Sho. Shoba's fine, either Shoba's works. fine. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, I, I've always known you as Shoba, sometimes Sho, so yeah. who knows what might come out. Either is fine. <laughs> and you're going to take me for a walk around the local park. Yes. Um, and during our walk and talk, Sho is going to be telling us a bit about her life generally, and where she's ended up, which is in India, in the southern part of India, in Kerala, in the mountains. So we're just leaving her flat. I've just got to put my boots on. I'll make sure I have the keys. Let's go. <laughs> there we go. Let me just pull this shut. Yep, fantastic. Let's go. So, Shoba, you've, you moved to this this area in 2011, was it? Tuluwa Marsh, yeah. yes, 2011. I moved to London in 2010, Yeah. and I moved here in 2011, that's okay, right. Okay, okay. But your life began in India. It did, I was born in India. Mm -hmm. I grew up there, lived there for the first 24 years of my life. Whereabouts um, were you born? I was born in the southern city, which was then called Madras, mm -hmm. which is now called Chennai. Yes. Um, 
and I lived there I think for a couple of years but really my whole childhood was very very peripatetic we moved every year every two years because yeah. my father worked in the central government right uh, which meant that it was a very transferable job yes he built bridges he was a hydrological engineer oh, really um, okay yeah and I wonder whether he'd know my grandfather. I, I wondered that when you were telling me about <laughs> yes. your grandfather. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we moved every couple of years, but mostly in the north of India was where my childhood was spent. Right. So though my parents are both from the southern state of Kerala, yes, which is probably the most beautiful state in the whole of the country, I'm only slightly biased. Um, <laughs> only slightly. <laughs> so they're both from Kerala. Yes. They were both born in Kerala. My father spent his entire childhood and growing up in the state. Um, my mother, some of hers. But I have never lived in Kerala before. So this is my first experience of living in the state that I am supposedly from. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. So that... Um, sort of like coming home to roost almost back to where your family roots are from rather that's than, right than that's necessarily right. your particular roots exactly where your, your beginnings were exactly I mean I have no idea whether it's coming home or I'm not sure I have a, a hugely well-defined sense of home in that it doesn't feel like it's one place yes but it feels like it's lots of places when I say I don't have a sense of home, it doesn't mean that I don't feel that I feel like I don't have any sense of belonging. That's not it. I think I have many senses of belonging. So yes. when I'm in London, I really feel at home in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I lived in Geneva, I felt very much at home there. Okay, so you really have moved around. And so if we if we sort of reel back to when you, to your childhood days, the choices that were made for you then. I meant that you're, you went to school in, in India and were educated there. And then at what point uh, did those choices change and you were able to make the choice to, to, to break out and, and, and leave India? And why, in fact, did you choose to leave India? Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so all of my childhood, obviously, was in India, moving around, packing boxes and discovering new homes every couple of years uh, along with my parents so in my first 10 years of school schooling I think I went to nine different schools in different oh regions different parts of India oh. which means we didn't really have um, you know cohorts of friends that we've maintained with us through life yes but maybe because of that the family itself is very close okay uh, I mean we have our differences we're all quite unique and different people but but the family bond between my parents and me and my two brothers is actually really strong yes um, when was I able to start making choices I lived at home with my parents um, obviously right through schooling yes well I say obviously but actually it's not that obvious because I realized that there were two years when my parents lived away as part of his work, my father went to Algeria for okay. two years yes. on deputation from the central government. I think he went there to help them with some hydrological engineering works. Mm -hmm. Actually, I must ask him exactly <laughs> what he was doing there. I don't know. <laughs> what was he doing? <laughs> <laughs> and my mum went with him, Yes. Uh, as did my younger brother. But my older brother and I stayed with an aunt. Um, okay. And actually, maybe that was the first 
actual choice we were given. So when my father got this opportunity for a deputation in Algeria, I remember my parents sitting me and my older brother down and saying, so this is what's going to happen. We are going to go, but you're kind of at a uh, crucial part of your schooling, so we can't really take you there. Yes. Because education is in French. Um, it's not easy to transfer you over. So where would you like to stay? Would you like to stay either with my father's parents mm -hmm. or with my mother's sister? So that was the first actual choice, I think, that we made. Interesting. Okay. And then it kind of developed from there. My parents came back and we moved around a bit more, did some more schooling. And then I continued to stay with my parents through my first job, which was in India in a city called Hyderabad. Okay, doing what was your...? I worked in a computer company, mm -hmm. um, making audiovisual... Oh my lord, look at those crocuses. Oh gosh, it's spring has sprung yeah. in London. Yeah. Lovely purple <laughs> crocuses we're looking at. So we've, we've just arrived in Archbishop's Park. In Archbishop's uh, Park. Uh, a million miles away from, from an Indian lifestyle. Yes, <laughs> yes. Anyway, so, you, so your first job was, was in India? It was. Um, and that kind of leads to your question about what made me move away from India. Yes. So when I was uh, in college, I did my first degree in, in the city called Hyderabad. Right. Um, and at that time, it was normal, I suppose, for the people with whom I studied to try and go to America. That was the big aspiration. Was it? Yes. To study. So we were all writing applications for various universities in America. What age were you then? 1920. Yeah. We all developed these personal statements together, which we had to write as part of the application yes. to go to American universities. So there was that whole aspiration, which was kind of, it wasn't a choice I was making. It was, it, it was in the environment. Okay. So okay. because everyone was doing it, I kind of assumed that that's what I also wanted to do. Yes, yeah, yes. And that, and that um, I take it your education was in English, so that, that, that move to America was actually a very smooth move in the sense, language-wise anyway. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure because okay. I remember in the university where I went, there were some of the um, professors who used to speak to me very loudly <laughs> and very slowly. Okay. So I assumed that I spoke accented English which maybe they couldn't understand so they assumed I couldn't understand them okay um, but there was a sense of quite often being made to feel a little uh, not quite there or, or, or stupid because of the fact that my English wasn't American maybe. okay interesting so the teachers at that time were American were they this is in America oh in Amer oh so you went to America I did. Ah, okay. I did. Sorry, I missed that. You've leapt I, I ahead. That. Yes, yes, yes. I did. Okay. That's but really yes, my education in India was in English. Isn't that just so so typically a stereotypical, but so true that um, some that even happens here if you can't, if you think somebody uh, may not know English as a first language, or you you think they don't, uh, you speak slowly or loudly, and uh, you don't have to. It's probably quite. Um, puzzling for you yeah you know? yeah so as a result of that did you find your your life in America was one that you didn't want to pursue no I wouldn't say that 
Where um, did you, where, where, where in America were you? In Texas. Oh my goodness, yes. okay. <laughs> yes. Stay and, and in the warmth. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the winters were freezing. Oh, were they? Yeah, yeah, it was my first, it was the first time I had seen snow. I remember the first time it snowed when I was there. I was sitting in a room which had glass on all sides. Yes. And I was writing an exam. And then I looked up and it was snowing. And I said to the professor, it's snowing. And I think I ran out. Did you? Of the exam to go and play in the snow. It was Get very, your priorities very right Into nature. Exactly. That was your first real sort of nature revelation that you yeah. are close to nature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, the winter was really, really cold, and I had never, I had never had that cold a winter before. I mean, in my childhood, I lived in Delhi, so it would get to four degrees, five degrees, okay, like that, so, so not warm. But mm -hmm. all you needed was thick socks, a woolen skirt, yeah, and a jumper. Okay, okay. Um, it so wasn't a hat gloves kind of cold. No, no. But obviously, when it's snowing, and it was in the minus in Texas, it was very, very, very. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, different to here where it's meant to be like eight or degrees nine degrees it's sunny but it's still cold i've got my gloves on you've yeah. got a hat on yeah <laughs> it's a different kind of cold isn't it yeah exactly <laughs> so having done your exams in texas and and then qualified as uh, so uh it's a very it's a very disjointed story <laughs> my life story of journeying um, I went there for a two-year course, a two-year master's, and this was because a couple of professors from this university that I ended up in had come to do a very short teaching stint in the university in India where I was doing my master's in journalism. Um, and they asked if I'd like to come back and study in their university. Yes. And I thought that was great. It just meant that the whole application process, which all my peers were struggling with, got a whole lot easier. Yes, yes. So I went straight off there. So in that sense, I mean, that's an interesting question about choice. Yes, I chose to go to America, mm -hmm. but then they opened a particular door, okay. which led me to end up in Texas. That wouldn't have been my first choice of yes. which university to go, but it was just very convenient and available okay. and, and easy. And you were studying journalism in Texas as well then? I was studying masters in media studies. Okay. I had to think there. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a two-year master's, but then yes. at the end of the first year, this computer company that I worked with in India called and said, we have an interesting new multimedia project and we'd really like you to come back and work on that for a year. Right. So this is another interesting choice question. I suppose if that ha offer hadn't come, I would have been very content to stay and finish my master's in Texas. But because the, the offer was made, I thought uh, that I was flattered. Mm. that they would fly me back from the States to come and do this project. Yes. So off I went, back to India. The idea was that I would then come back once that project was over. Yes. And finish my master's. Um, but then I didn't because I then applied for my PhD here. Okay. And I ended up coming to the UK instead. And studying what for your PhD? Cultural studies. Okay. That's quite broad, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, to give you a more precise idea, I was researching the role of the media in developing and maintaining the sense of national identity in India. Okay. So how, how is television used? How are print media used? Does that make sense? So yes. it was about national identity Very as a concept, yeah, yeah, but yeah. also the role of the media within that. 
Okay. And India is an interesting context for that because, you know, there are, there are questions about what an Indian national identity looks like. Definitely, because it's actually such a broad range of cultural identities. It's very yes. diverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as a result of your PhD, did that lead you back to India again? or It did not. And as a result so, of your PhD, what were, what were your... What was your conclusion? Did you come to a conclusion? Oh my lord, I have no <laughs> idea. I must have done because they gave me the PhD. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it was anything particularly earth shattering. No. To be honest, I mean, I, I found something through my field work like how people interpret media messages about national identity is very much framed by the identity that they're already bringing in to that media mm -hmm. message before they've been exposed to it. Okay. So there are there are senses of inequality of some groups being more superior or inferior to other groups and all of that affects how media messages are interpreted. Right. It really wasn't anything earth shattering. Was <laughs> <laughs> um, it changing the world? It definitely wasn't. <laughs> uh, and has really anything changed since? That's the that's the big question, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's it's a tricky one, yeah. which is a bit difficult to, to unpack yes. in the course of this podcast. But going back to your issue of choices, mm. I think there's another interesting choice I made there about why the UK, why not go to the US yes. to finish my MS and then go on to do a PhD there, because that's what a lot of my peers were doing. Um, but my then boyfriend, whom I later went on to marry, mm -hmm. uh, and then divorce, right. Uh, he was doing his PhD in the UK. Okay. And I got a, a scholarship for the PhD that I wanted to do with the person that I want, with the professor that I wanted to work sure. with. Sure. So that makes a big difference, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it that, made a difference. Yeah. So then I ended up here. It didn't take me back to India after that because I ended up getting married. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the beginning of my life in the UK. Okay. Yeah. And the... Um, you chose London, I take it, or I chose not? London many, many years after that. Um, I did my PhD from Milton Keynes, from okay. the Open University. So I lived in Milton Keynes. All PhD students have to live within, I don't know, at that stay, at that time it was eight, eight kilometers of the campus or something. So okay. you were expected to be an on-campus student yes. as a PhD student. Um, so I lived, I lived there, then I, I think initially I lived in Leicester actually, in this cottage in the middle of the countryside, which was very, very cold, um, very badly insulated. <laughs> so in the winter, uh, the winds just swept right into the cottage. So there was, that was my first experience of the UK. Mm -hmm. Then I moved to Milton Keynes, and then I moved to Bristol where I work for a bit, but none of these choices were really driven particularly by by me in the sense of I was following circumstances. Yes, yeah. Um, so Leicester, because that's where my then boyfriend lived. Yes. Um, Milton Keynes, because that's where the university was, and he left to go and teach in Malaysia, so I moved closer to, to the university. Bristol, because he then came back 
and got a job in Bristol. Okay. So then I moved to Bristol. Of course, yeah, yeah. So you see a pattern emerging, yes. don't you? <laughs> um, and, and though it sounds like I'm, you know, following people and circumstances around, it's not so much that I was being dictated to, it's just that these seemed very viable, um, happy enough yes. choices. Yes, that's that's quite interesting. It's particularly kind of when you're in your 20s as well, you go with the flow more and uh, perhaps don't question where you are if you're happy where you are. Yeah. The choices you make kind of happen more fluidly um, or just yeah, you you go, you go, um, you go with the flow, or you go with what other people are, are up to, and perhaps are not. Particularly when you're in a relationship as well, you're not so you're not making independent choices as such. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, but I also don't want to give the impression that all of that was easy because no. coming to the UK was not I easy was in many say, ways. Yes. There, were, there were so many shocks and. It's the small things that really stand out in my mind. Like the first time I went to a sandwich shop um, at lunchtime near Leicester University and they asked me what sandwich I wanted. And I thought, I looked at this range of things that was at the counter and I had no idea what any of it was. So I chose something at random. It might have been, I don't know, let's say ham. So then there was another question, white bread or brown bread? <laughs> So I had another choice to make, and then with butter or without butter, and then with salad or without salad, and that last question completely flummoxed me because I thought, I've asked for a sandwich, not a salad. Why, why is she asking me about salad? salad yes. So it was really stressful. It sounds really small, <laughs> yes. but because there are other people watching and you feel clumsy Under yes, and yeah. Yeah, out of place and under-equipped just to deal with these these facets of modernity and life in the West. Yes. Um, I think I spent a lot of time feeling quite stupid. You know, developing confidence yeah, yes. in myself and that it was okay not to know things. Whereas growing up in, in India, everything was obviously so, everything's so familiar and you're, you, ha you didn't have to make, the choices just came. Well, what did you have choice or was just lunch was lunch and you didn't have sandwiches as such, did you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you'd go to a canteen at university, but you knew what was what. Yeah, yeah, yes. It was much less fraught. And as, and as a result, you know, in terms of food, I mean, that's such a big cultural difference, isn't it, between, although there are so many Indian restaurants here and stuff, but it's, it's different from, from Indian food in India. And you having to uh, so get used to Indian food as it's expressed or cooked in this country, was that a shock to you as well? I wouldn't say that was very big. No? In that, you know, I was really open to trying food that was not Indian. That yeah. was part of the excitement of being somewhere that was not India. Um, so I quite liked having those choices. Mm -hmm. It was just, it took me time to get past the stresses of learning how to use a knife and fork, for instance. None of this was a given. Oh, cool. Um, so yes, because you, you would use your hands, wouldn't you? Yeah, we with our fingers. Yes. Uh, so I don't think getting used to Indian food as it was here was a big thing because I don't think I, I don't think that was the food I sought for the first few 
years. Okay. Except sometimes if I wanted a feeling of home, if I was getting homesick, then if we came into London, I might find a South Indian restaurant and have yes. a dosha, <coughs> which is fairly universal. It translates very well yeah. here. It's pretty much what you would get in India. And for those podcast listeners who don't know what a dosha is? It's a pancake made of a batter of rice and lentils. Mm-hmm. Um, a well-made dosha is very crispy. Yes. And it's served with a kind of lentil thingy called sambar and a coconut chutney. Yes. Yeah. It's very what nice. we have for breakfast quite often in, is it? Okay. in the south of India, yeah, in Kerala. Very nice. And then from... The, from um, from making, from going to Bristol, where did you go from there then? From Bristol, where did I go from Bristol? It's like unpacking ah, your life. This is yes. your life show. See, now <laughs> that, Emma, was the first big choice I would say I made. Okay. It was the first thing that happened purely of my own volition. I'd had this dream for many, many years of working for the UN. Right. It was partly kind of the glamour of the perceived glamour of it. It was partly the sense that it was doing good in the world and creating a chance for positive change away from conflict towards a more harmonious society, etc., etc. So I'd had this dream and aspiration for a very long time. So I got to the stage in Bristol after, uh, I think I'd lived there for 13 years or so, Mm -hmm. 11, 12, 13, something like that. Um, and then it just began to get feel a bit small for me. Yes. You know, it, it wasn't fitting. Um, and also work, which until then, I worked in an anti-racist charity supporting victims of racial harassment and attack. Um, and it was a job I enjoyed tremendously because you were making a difference and it was very easy to see what difference you were making. You know, yes. the impact was every day, everywhere around you. I loved that job. But I reached a stage where... It wasn't easy anymore in that there was friction with my boss, who until then had been just the most wonderful, kind mentor, but something went skew with in that relationship and it mm-hmm. became quite stressful. Yes. So I thought maybe now is the time just to rediscover this dream of the UN. By this time, I had already been, I got married to this person who I was talking about before and yeah. divorced. Okay. So I kind of had an opening there about trying to change my life and redefine it so it all sort of came together Um, so I went I took myself off to Geneva to do an MBA Mm -hmm. which was called an international organizations MBA so basically it was gearing people to to work for the UN and other international organizations and I was seeing that very I I blew my life savings to did do you, I was that. going to say how did you fund that because Geneva isn't it, uh, isn't a cheap place not to, cheap. to live either and the course was not cheap yeah. yeah 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 it was a real leap of faith okay yeah, and looking back you know I I can say that took courage and that took maybe a small measure of desperation but also a lot of courage and some faith that I could make this thing work for me um so it is almost a defining moment, isn't it? Or trying to redefine where, yeah. where your, where your path, yeah, where My your place life is in the world, yes, yes, and who I was quite fundamentally yeah. was trying to redefine that, yeah. But that was brilliant. It was life changing, yes. in a very very positive way. Um, a, it gave me contacts in the UN. So you know. 
I, I discovered quite quickly that it wasn't easy to get a job in the UN. No. So I thought, okay, what are the other ways that one can find the way, find a way into the system? So I took to having, I knew I wanted to work for the High Commissioner for Refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of this MBA, we got a, an access pass, which would allow us into all the UN offices. So I just took to going and sitting in the canteen of the High Commissioner <laughs> for Refugees every lunchtime. Oh my goodness. And I would hear on people talking. Yes. And if I heard someone from the Africa office speaking, I would just shamelessly go up and introduce myself to them. And eventually, this resulted in an internship. Ah, so well I interned yeah. for four months, and that then turned into a consultancy, which was paid. Um, so I scratched that itch just by having lots of coffee. Yes, yeah, yes. That's incredible, isn't it? It's just like... Oops. We're in the child. <laughs> School kids. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> it's all happening in the park today. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that takes it takes courage, but also it just shows your determination, isn't it? That when, when you really want something enough, you will find ways to make it happen. You have to, you have to really be... Um, uh, improvise and just think outside the box. To, to get what you want. You do, that's true. But and I also recognise that I was in, in a position of privilege, that I could do this. Yes, I could fund yes. a stay of one year and a fairly expensive course yes. for one year in this belief, which was irrational in many ways. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't well researched, it wasn't well thought through, I hadn't done a pros and cons list, I had done none of that. But I just lifted myself off and arrived in Geneva thinking I'm going to make this work but that that's but I could. <laughs> uh, how so much of that I think is down to a belief uh, if you have the belief and it's really in you you'll make it happen one way or another sometimes it won't actually happen in the way that you want it to happen mm. or you expect it to happen mm. but it 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 will happen at some point and you were you just stuck here, stuck in there, didn't you? <laughs> so I suppose you worked for the High Commissioner of uh, for refugees, for refugees yeah. in Geneva. Then in Geneva, it was based that's in the Geneva. headquarters. Yeah, and then they have country offices in hundred odd countries. So did you the travel world. quite a lot with your work? I did. I did. I did travel some. Yep. I um, I worked at uh, coordinating activities around the Somali refugee situation. You know, it's a very protracted refugee situation, a couple of decades of displacement, um, and just many of them are stuck in limbo. Yes. So uh, my job was to bring together governments of countries that could make a difference to that and find what are called durable solutions, which are sustainable solutions for Mm -hmm. the refugee crisis. Okay. So that was my job. It was really interesting, Mm -hmm. I have to say. What what do you think was your... uh, the moment that was has been was the most rewarding for you in that role. Hmm, I'm not sure I could pick one actually. The most um, interesting ones were bringing ministers together uh, of of countries around Somalia. Right. And. Each, each of these ministers would represent a different way of looking at the Somali refugee situation. But to get them to talk and to get 
the idea that you could handle the situation in a more humane way than some of those states were handling. Yes. To get that discussion and dialogue going and to open up chances of other governments actually being more welcoming, allowing refugees to work, um, and drafting formal agreements which they all undertook to stick to. I think all of that was quite gratifying. Yes, yes. I'm not sure whether it's made a continuing difference, but in that moment, it was really, really, it was interesting it, for me at a personal level, mm -hmm. but I think it also made some difference in the world. Yeah, yeah. We have to hope this, don't we? Do we do have to we? hope. Yes. I mean, and the current uh, refugee crisis or crises across the world is is huge. There must be, a, a, as a as a commission, they must be like tearing their hair, <laughs> hair out uh, and trying to work out what the priorities are because there are so many priorities at yeah, the moment. Yeah, and rarely enough funding. Yes. To meet all those, to meet all the priorities and needs. Yes, yes. So how long were you in Geneva? It was split. I told you it's a very fragmented trajectory, my life. <laughs> so I, I did my, I did my coffees, which led to the internship, which was yes. unpaid, which led to a paid consultancy, and then I saw a job advertised in the Economist in London right. for an international NGO which did human rights work uh, in 60 countries around the world and before the MBA I would never have looked at a job advert in The Economist and thought I'm going to apply for that yes but that MBA gave me the confidence right to do it so I applied and I got the job and that's what brought me to London okay so then I came and worked in London for three years and then I had a call from someone I'd worked with at the UNHCR, the mm -hmm. High Commissioner for Refugees, saying there's a new project, would you like to come back and work on that for three months? Right. So I thought, why not? And I had just met Chris, my husband. Mm -hmm. He wasn't my husband then. Yeah. But we had just met. Uh, and a few months after we met, I had this call from Geneva saying, come and work in Geneva for three months. Um, so obviously, you know, there were things to negotiate there with the yes. relationship. But off I went for three months, which turned into six months, which turned into nine months. <laughs> and Chris said, are you ever coming back? Uh, I could completely see why he was wondering. Yes. But, you know, this was my lifelong dream of being at the UN, being realized. So yes, yes. Uh, I, I, was, I was torn, not in the sense that I wanted, I would have left Chris to keep the job. I don't think I wanted to do that, mm -hmm. but I really would have liked to have my cake and eat it too. Yes, <laughs> I, that's, and that's, that is sometimes the issue, isn't it? Yeah. Some choices that we have to make are pretty tough and sometimes there is a compromise, and uh, which obviously you found. <laughs> that's right. I but think it helped that Chris was honest about how it made him feel how that distance and long distanceness of the relationship was. I think it was easier for me yes. than it was for him. And it was important that he was able to tell me that. And, and you know, very sweetly, he made a choice um, to try and navigate the story towards an outcome that I wanted, which was to stay in the UN. So he came, he took leave from his work for three <laughs> months and he came and stayed and lived in Geneva with me. Yes to see if there was any chance of him getting a job there right. so that he could then facilitate me continuing to work in yeah, the UN and yeah. unfortunately that didn't 
work out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then he came back to London and eventually I kind of reached a stage where, well, I was having lunch one day in the UN and he, Chris calls me and he says, why don't we move to India? Why don't we take over this coffee plantation that your grandfather has there? There's a little dilapidated bungalow. Yeah. He said, let's refurbish it and, um, and live there. And I still remember, I did this quick computation in my mind, thinking, I wonder, can he be serious? And I thought, no, he's definitely not serious. So I said, yeah, why not? Did you really? In complete confidence that he wasn't serious. But of course he was. Ah. I, I had underestimated the man and his determination. Ah, so that was the trigger point almost. That was the trigger point. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because when I met you and Chris, it was 2000 and. 14, 15, 14, I opened the bookshop and you had an exhibition of your photography That's from right. in and around London. That's uh, right, that and was from, the graffiti. And from India, no. the first one was... Yes, uh, ah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, from India and from around London. And your second exhibition was to do with graffiti, or street art, as it's nicely termed. Yeah. Um, both again, both here and in and in India too. That's right. Because yeah, you, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and it was nice to see that correlation between. I say, London. We treat London as the world, don't we, or as a country almost of itself, um, and and India. Uh, that was your idea, though, to to try and bring that to to juxtapose oh, the two, the that. India and the okay. and the London one. Uh, uh, it's nice to see the, the similarities in some ways and, and the reasoning behind that street, the street art. But, um, and so we discovered that they're really different as well. Yes. In yes. India, it's quite an elite art. Yes. Unlike here, where it's quite a subversive art. Yes. Yeah. In fact, that would be just nice. So your, your um, interest in that, that, how did that come about? Just that across, was, talking a bit about London here. That was after, well, it connects back to the UN. That was after... Um, I decided to give up the UN job, came back to London mm -hmm. with no job, nothing in hand by way of earning any money to yeah. sustain myself, but still in this absolute faith that something would something would come good. Yes. <clears throat> and nothing was coming good, really. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm unemployed. I'm not earning any money. I really should use the time to do things which are interesting and which I wouldn't have a chance to do if I were working. So one of the things I had done is since I bought this flat in Lower Marsh, I'd walked through the graffiti tunnel many, many times. Yes. But been quite intimidated by the artists. Um, never really dared to chat with them, talk to them, find out w what this what the story was really. They're always sort of in their own zone. Yeah. For, for the podcasters, this graffiti tunnel is uh, known is also known as Leak Street. Uh, and it's actually just off Lower Marsh and it runs right underneath Waterloo Station. It's a fantastic place to, to visit if you are in London uh, and not intimidating at all, although it may seem so on the surface as we're discussing. It isn't. That's so so what, what, um, what, what was the sort of the, in, the um, what initiative did you take to sort of meet them or, or well, talk I decided to, them. to go back to my academic roots which is in journalism yes and decided that I would be a journalist so I uh, thought why not write an article about graffiti or street art yeah was uh, I was in the perfect place to do that yes and it was uh, an avenue to satisfy my curiosity which had been building up over many years so I used that as an in to speak with 
the street artists. I yeah. said, I'm writing an article. Would you mind if I spoke to you? And I discovered that they were absolutely up for it. They yeah. were so ready to talk and explain. And um, I just saw the whole diversity of, of approaches that they bring to it and the reasons why they do it and the methods they use. It was really wonderful. And I did write an article for an Indian newspaper. Yes, yes. I remember you share, sharing that with me. From that, yeah. Uh, and the differences as well with, with here where they have the, ta the taggers, the, the foot soldiers as they call them, is it foot soldiers? And then they have those who are actually the, the proper artists, as the, the layers of, of, uh, of uh, art perhaps, or, or is it art or what, what are the layers? Are taggers always taggers or do they become artists eventually? Do you have to work up a system? up the hierarchy of street art before you're allowed to to um, create your own art so say somewhere like Leak Street uh, I think I think the space is open I mean my my knowledge is now a good few years old I don't know if the codes have changed uh, if the rules have changed I have no idea but I think people are very happy for anyone with a spray can to come and spray yes. on the walls. But I discovered that there are some, there are some unwritten codes. Like there was this one group of artists who actually uh, got quite offended at a group that came by after they had done their work, painted over, and painted a new piece of street art. Right. Which in normal circumstances I thought was perfectly acceptable because yeah. the ones, the minute you've done your piece. You step back, you take a photo, that's it. Your relationship with that wall is finished and you relinquish it yes. to the next artist. So I, I knew this artist who had got really, really upset mm -hmm. at, the, at the upstart artist who had sprayed over his work. And I said, why? Because your work was done. You had finished your job, you had taken your photos, and that wall now just was back in the universe. Mm -hmm. He said, no, 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 the problem was that my, what I did was a very complex piece of art and I'd used seven colors. And this new person came and overpainted with just four colors. Okay. That's not okay, that's dissing uh, me. Oh. So that was one okay, of the rules I discovered. <laughs> and that compared to in India, is it frowned upon the street art in India? In the way that some, some of it is here? No. No. No, it's not. It seems to be mostly practiced by very westernized, young, urban men, I would mm -hmm. say even. I'm not sure I know, but, but you know, I'm, I'm not completely sure of the scene in India now. Um, but it's quite a commercial activity as well. They get called in by pubs and restaurants right. to come paint their walls. Okay. So that, that seems to be more the ethos there. It's more of a stylized thing, is it? It's like by commission of what they want. Yeah, many are by than, commission, yeah. rather than from the the heart. It's it's not a it's not a Banksy, for example. It's not, and here even people who are not at the Banksy, in in the Banksy approach, you know, quite often it's about just being anti-establishment. Right. So you reach spaces where you know you are not authorized yes. to reach. Yes. And the act of subversion is that you've reached it, that you've breached some border of a space which is controlled by an authority and you've gone there and even if it's just a tiny little one one letter of the alphabet you've made your mark yeah yeah um, that's the point is it making your mark isn't yeah. it? yeah 
attacking Mao. And to be anti-establishment. Yes, yes. But in India, I don't think it has that resonance at all. Okay. Shall we go this way, down yes, the history path? Oh, London? yes, yes, because you have to show me on the history path, there was on one of these uh, points. Was yes, it there's a mention of leeches. Of what was it again? Leeches. Leeches, that's yes, right. I'll show so, you the leeches. Okay, so yeah. let's move on with our story. And um, so you're, you're back in London, you're doing your, your uh, you've done your street art and your journalism story. And at that point, the whole idea of India starts to emerge yeah, again. Because yeah. I remember you coming into the shop and Chris too. I remember Chris always talking about, I want to have strawberry. Yes. A strawberry farm or just, uh, yes, to yes. grow strawberries in yes. India. That was I his big dream. I hope he'd do it one day. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, it was, you showed me a photograph and it was of a, a, a possible plot, which was just like a, uh, well, it was just the, the forest up a mountain in the middle of nowhere. And I was thinking, how on earth are you going to do? How are you going to go about this? But how did you reach the point of deciding to go and, and where to sort of set your foundations, as it were? Yeah. So the point, the, the starting point was this coffee plantation that I mentioned before, yeah. which belonged to my grandfather. It's my mum's dad. He's no more, but the coffee plantation is still, is still there. Um, so we went off and looked at it. But before we did that, actually, I remember having a conversation with one of my nieces, Ananya, who then lived in London. And she very wisely said, if you're planning to do this, it's a huge life change. So maybe consider going to live in that region for six months and then think about it. Which, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yes. Did we do that? No, we didn't. <laughs> we just jumped into it with both feet. Um, so we went and saw this plantation, and I think very quickly both of us realized, Chris and I, that this wasn't going to work for us because it was, it was rural, but mm -hmm. very near a main road. In Kerala? I don't oh. mean a main road like in uh, London, but in Kerala. Yeah, yeah, still in the, in the same region. Uh -huh. Um, I'm looking for the leeches now. Uh, yeah, I think this okay. is it. Okay, we'll wait. Uh, okay. Uh, so, so we went and saw this place, decided it wasn't for us, and Chris had discovered a few more plots online. And, you know, this is purely him being really adventurous in a way that I would not have had the courage to be. So he says, there's another couple of plots. There's this organized, this is a property real estate agency that has more plots why don't we go and see so we did yeah and I also asked another cousin of mine she recommended so I think we saw probably about seven eight plots of land right and I saw this one and I thought if it's gonna happen then this is it because it's at the crest of a hill and it has just got the most stupendously beautiful view you have loads of sky and you have eagles flying at eye level, oh, just wow. gently gliding. Um, and you see forest and greenery as far as the eye can see. Uh, so we decided to, to risk it. So it, Chris did that job of finding it, which was crucial. And then I did the job of trying to check that the papers were okay yes. and that we were safe buying it because yeah. you can get into all kinds of trouble. Right. And clearly all the stars aligned. Yeah. So then we went back and did the deed. 
<laughs> he did. And then uh, gave up our jobs. Yes, had the leaping do at the bookshop. Yeah, that's right. With that's Chris's right. Had, uh, music right. music band. That's and right, all. in which I drummed as yes. well. For, Fantastic. For what it was worth, yeah. <laughs> that was a great leaving It was a wonderful actually. evening. Yeah. Uh, and then we started building four years ago now. Yes. Still not done. <laughs> Still not done. <laughs> Unbelievable. But how life has changed for you. And I podcasted with Chris, who's now your husband. Um, and that was two years ago. Oh, Possibly more than two years ago now. Three. Is it three oh, years ago? Oh, it was during the pandemic, wasn't it? Yes, I think it's two years ago. 2021. Um, and yes, I'll put that link in the in the show yeah. notes as well for the podcast if you're interested to hear Chris's version of, of uh, where you were then. Um, but basically, yeah, life changed so significantly. And, and one of the things that I, from what you've been telling me before we started talking on this podcast, was the whole, um, that whole nature thing so many animals from tigers to eagles to moths to uh, scorpions and all the rest of it and how how that must have had such an impact on you in terms of a, a different kind of busy profile to life after a busy people profile of yeah, London yeah. to this busy nature profile of, yeah. of where you are in the middle of nowhere in India yeah. and how you've managed that yeah I don't know how I've managed it but I've clearly learned a lot about myself mm. in this in this journey. I mean, I, I say that this was Chris's idea and I kind of went along with it, but I don't mean by that that I was just doing what Chris wanted. No. It was when he presented that idea, it, I suddenly thought this is really interesting. A good idea, yes. And um, it would just broaden life and yeah. it would be doing something that I would never have considered off my own bat. I would never have thought of going back to India. Yes. Um, but my parents are absolutely delighted yes, that, we're, sure. that we're back there. <laughs> and I love it, I have to say. So Chris's idea, but I've really leaned into it, as they say, yes. these days. And I've discovered bits of myself which I didn't know existed. Okay. I thought I was a city person, yes. completely city person. But clearly, I'm, I am, because when I'm in London, I'm really happy. But I'm also a country person. Yes, yes. I've kind of relished the challenge of getting this project off the ground though it's been extraordinarily lurchy and I'm not saying I've succeeded at it I think we could have done it more quickly but anyway these are these are things you learn this is hindsight in the it? course of doing stuff uh, yeah. it's hindsight but you know I wonder sometimes if we were to do it again yeah. whether I would make all the same mistakes <laughs> all over again <laughs> so I'm not sure how much sight there is in the hind but but I can at least yeah I can see that there yeah. were different ways of doing things yes. So while we're walking through Archbishop's Park, we've stopped by, there's, there's these little kind of medallions in the path of various events through history. And one is 1820, Henry Potter breeds leeches at Streatham to supply the London hospitals. Because of course, in those days, uh, leeching uh, your blood, to get, get the blood out, get the impurities out or whatever it was. Bad blood yeah, out. Bad yeah. scientific explanation, but I'm sure the, you listeners understand what I'm getting at, but your leech story is quite horrific. <laughs> your, so your walks in nature during the monsoon time take on a new dimension. Would you yeah. like to yeah. tell It is only in the wet season. It is so only it's, in the about, wet season. it's about three, four months yes. of the year. Um, in the monsoon anyway, it's very difficult to go out for a walk because yeah. it's, it's brutal weather. Is the it? rain yeah. is heavy, it's relentless, and the wind is screeching, screeching, non-stop. 
But if you, and it's muddy. And it's um, muddy, yeah. Which means it also gets very slippery because it's very hilly. So everything is up and down. And if it's mud paths, you can just slide. But the other thing is you get leached. There are leeches everywhere of all shapes and sizes. No, the shape is fairly standard actually, but all sizes. Yeah. Some of them can just look like a pin head. They're that small, just a tiny little dot, yeah. which you look at sitting on your foot and you wouldn't know it's a leech until it's drunk your blood and elongated and thickened a bit. Um, but it's, you inevit inevitably get a lot of leech bites. Yeah. every year in the monsoon okay um mostly when you go out but some of the some of the little fellas actually find their way into the house as well you and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it you can you can put we we put detol antiseptic all over our feet and legs before we go out so up to our knees yeah and that deters them i think they don't like the smell of it or mm -hmm. something but fewer of them climb aboard if okay. you do that, then if you don't. Yes. And the leeches, the, are they all at the ground level and scurry up or are they higher up and drop onto No. You? So sometimes you can be walking in between vegetation of some sort and they might be high up on a leaf just kind of doing that. And if your hand brushes past, yeah. then they will climb onto your hand. Uh, okay. So you can, you can find them all over you. If you go for a long walk, you yeah. do really well to examine pretty much everywhere in your body. Right. There's a, there's a chap who lives near our house, and an indigenous uh, man whom I'm very, very fond of, called Chanduetan. And he has five cows, so he takes them to graze every day. So he's walking in the forest from 10 to 5, including in the monsoon. I really don't know how he does that. But he tells me a story once of some monsoons back. He goes out grazing, he comes back, and he realizes, damn, I've lost one cow. So he and his wife go back into the forest to look for the cow because this is, it's a precious resource. Yes. And he said they came back um, and they switched, they found the cow. Yes. Came back, switched the light on in their house and looked in the mirror and he says all he could see was the whites of his <gasps> eyes. Everything else oh. was covered in leeches. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How awful. I'm not coming to visit you in the monsoon. Yeah, it's, it's an experience. I think you have to be prepared. You have to come wanting that experience yes. if you come in the monsoon. Okay. So but you, you can also decide to sit indoors and just look at the amazing drama that the monsoon brings. It's really pretty it spectacular. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Yes. It really is. It's harsh, so you have to learn how to deal with that. So I normally make five minutes every day to just scream to let the fear and the frustration out and that helps you scream I scream for five minutes yeah <laughs> yeah it really helps does it because it's just that wind is shrieking at you all the time uh, and it goes it just gets straight into your head or into mine anyway yeah then you can't go out and do much and there's a sense of vulnerability because we're up on a hilltop and yeah. we have one road that goes down to the village um, and part of that goes through forests, which means there are lots of trees. Yeah. High wind, trees can fall. If a tree falls, your path is blocked. Right. So, you know, if there's an emergency, it's very difficult to go find medical help, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. You have to carry that stress through the monsoon. But if you're willing to do that, then, yeah, the drama is very, very high. Are you, are you capturing this 
on, uh, on in film somehow, or is it very difficult to do that? I am. I do some time lapse okay. work to just to, to try and get a sense of what the clouds do because they do very specific things at different times of the monsoon. Okay. There's a whole period when they go, if you're standing outside on our balcony, they go from left to right because that's the prevailing direction of the wind and then suddenly one day they switch direction and they're going from right to left. Oh my goodness. When, it, uh, when you get into the latter part of the monsoon. Right. So you can kind of judge the seasons <laughs> by... You, so you know when it starts going the other yeah. direction, it's coming towards the end. Exactly. Okay. And the monsoon period, is it th three or four months? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a quite a long time for me. I think it might be a bit of an endurance, but also wildly fascinating as well, as long as I knew I had some a, a building to be in <laughs> so I could observe it without being a... Yeah. And my, my younger brother, who lives in Lyon with his family in France, um, he and his family came this monsoon. Okay. They spent a month there with uh, Solène and Anuka, my nieces, who um, are, one is a teenager, one is not yet a teenager. Yes. Uh, and Muriel, Pradeep's wife, and they coped magnificently. I was really impressed. Mm -hmm. um, but he really wanted to experience the monsoon, and I think he wanted his children to see the monsoon yes. because... It's unique. Yeah, it's, it's an yeah. experience you can't really replicate okay. anywhere else in the world. And you can't describe it and help people understand it that way. I yeah. think the only way to understand it is by being in it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, so maybe I should not be a wimp. <laughs> I can visit you in the monsoon as well. Let's start with not monsoon first. Well, we, we are trying to decide. So the idea, Emma, is that we'll have a bed and breakfast of sorts okay, in, yes. in our place. So um, the house is nearly finished after four years of, I mean, building from scratch up a mountain. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, I, I, I think you need a medal for that because you're dealing with, you know, completely new way of living, like from building, from designing to getting the workmen yeah. there, dealing with the paperwork. Dealing and with dealing with each other. I think we also learnt a lot about our relationship in the course of this. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, most of the year we have each other and that's it. Yeah. You know, so there's a very high degree of reliance on each of us on the other person yes. to fulfill a whole range of needs and that's it can be a challenge. Yeah. And obviously, like all couples, we work differently in different circumstances, so I think we've we've learnt a lot about each other, mm -hmm. but also about ourselves. Mm -hmm. What would you say you've learnt about yourself? Um, maybe that I'm a bit too impatient. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted things to happen faster, or? I did. I definitely did. No, yeah. I didn't think I would be four years down the road and still not have a house that we were living in, you know, completely. We live in an annex now. Mm -hmm. I think also maybe that I was a bit unrealistic. I think Chris possibly had a, a better approach to it, which is he would have gone for a much simpler house. Okay. Um, possibly more suited to the environment. I mean, neither of us designed the house. We did bring in an architect and that was a joint decision. But I think Chris would have been happy enough with a smaller, less ambitious, less fancy house. I think what we end up with will be beautiful. Yes. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> when we have friends to come and visit and, you know, you see how they react to the house. Um, 
it, there's a lot of joy for both of us in that. But I think if if Chris had had his way, we'd have had a house completed a long time ago, and we'd okay. be living in it now. <laughs> But you have a beautiful garden as well attached. We to do. This. We do. That's been a real unexpected joy for me. Um, I never knew I liked gardening. Okay. Which I suppose means I never liked gardening. But now all of a sudden I had this land and there's a garden on it, which is pretty spectacular, even if I say so myself. It gives me a lot of joy. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. And still no strawberry plants. There was one. There was one lone fella I bought for Chris. It come languished. On, Chris. It died. <laughs> I'm hoping when I come out to eat strawberries, Indian strawberries. How about that? Well, it won't be off that plant because that's an ex-strawberry plant. But um, yeah, I hope so. I hope Chris discovers that. Yeah. That it's interest funny, again. That's the one thing that stuck in my mind about about him because that was such a big thing in his mind before going or maybe it was his romantic notion and has he's moved on from that realized that there are other things that he finds more fascinating i think there's also there's also overwhelm isn't there yes uh, we're stuck with this project which is taking far longer than either of us imagined so maybe once there's more bandwidth to relax and step into things that we want to do rather than just feeling pushed along by events and timelines which are dictated by the building yeah maybe those strawberries will make a reappearance and you know chris is very methodical and he's got a brilliant technical mind so if he sets his mind to it he will find a way to make strawberries grow on that hill <laughs> i'm convinced <laughs> so you you're saying so eventually you're hoping to have it run it as a as a bed and breakfast yeah um and are we looking towards the end of this year before the monsoon, so. after the monsoon? Um, we'll have the house finished before the monsoon, okay. she says confidently. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'll have the house finished before the monsoon. Um, and then we need a little time just to let things bed in, figure out what works, figure out what needs tweaking. Still yes. have to buy furniture, um, curtains, all of that has to happen. But yes, I'm hoping that after the monsoon, so by November, December time, there are a lot of relatives who are in the queue in already, the queue, waiting to are. come, <laughs> and lots of friends, yes. all of whom would be really, really happy to have come and stay. So we will update on my YouTube channel okay. when this place is ready to be visited and enjoyed. So for the podcast listeners, uh, I, I will put in the show notes your YouTube link, because it does show the, the progress from literally nothing to to where you are now with oops more children arriving for sports in the park um but we'll uh yes so i will put in the show notes the youtube link for the podcast listeners uh which which basically documents your whole story more or less yeah it's it's been a bit lurchy and very very amateurish but you know it is what it is it's just kind of seeing seeing a, at least a small part of that process through my yes. very amateur eyes. Yes. And that's I still like going back and looking at some of those old films and seeing, gosh, that's where we were. So it yeah. feels like there's been some progress, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, that's huge progress from, from when I saw the, the initial uh, YouTube videos anyway. And you've got a beautiful garden, definitely. And I'm so looking forward to coming and visiting. So the next podcast that I will be doing, I'll do it with you and Chris. At in the Kerala. House. In yes. Kerala, definitely. In so, the hills. So we're a thousand meters above sea level, by the way. Which Gosh, is which is pretty. good because the weather is really lovely most of the year. Yes. You know, I, I've terrorized everyone with this monsoon <laughs> thing, but otherwise it goes up to the 31, 32, but quite often it's just sitting in the high 20s Celsius. So nice. Lovely. It's really pleasant. And yeah. if you, in the sun it's hot, yeah. but if you find a patch of shade, there's always a breeze and you instantly cool down. Yes, yes. So... The one thing I haven't asked you is uh, the language and language barriers. Has there been much of that? Because, I mean, having grown up in India, you just naturally assume that the language you spoke growing up is the language that is spoken where you are now. And has that been the case or have you had to well, learn? It's my mother tongue, mm -hmm. which just literally means it's the tongue of my mother and father, it's my mm -hmm. father tongue as well. But it's not a language, this is Malayalam, which is the language of the state of Kerala. Malayalam. Malayalam, mm -hmm. yeah. It's a palindrome, which is one of the interesting things. It reads the same in both directions. Okay. M-A-L-A-Y-A. Yes, oh, so it does, yes. <laughs> um, but I didn't speak it very well at all before I moved to Kerala. Okay. Like I've said, I've, I've never lived in Kerala before, so it's, it's, a, it's a big first for me. It but was a place parents, where I used to go yeah. for my summer vacation. Okay. And your parents always spoke to you in Malayalam, did they, no. at home? No. My father, yes, mostly. Okay. My mother, no. We spoke in English. We still speak a lot in English. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So English, I would say, was and remains my first language. Okay. Yeah, though it's not my mother tongue. But so, I've learned Malayalam mm -hmm. after arriving to live in Kerala. Yes. So I speak it much more confidently now. My yes. vocabulary, vocabulary has increased. And I know words for things which I would never have thought to learn in the normal course of life. Like, what do you call a spade? And what do yes. you call that implement which is used in the, in the building? Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. And I've also learned to read and write. Okay. The language. Uh, some of the local kids taught me. That's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is really nice. I still it's re I read very haltingly. It's not like I read English where I can skim read things very quickly, but I have to look at each letter. Yeah. But at least things make sense. I can read bus signs and such like. It's one of my favourite sounds in I London. Know. Good old Big Ben. Yeah. When I first came to London, my work was just here over the bridge from on this side uh, and I used to come off at Westminster tube station. I always knew when I was late when Big Ben was timing nine and I'd break into a run across the bridge. <laughs> oh, I'm late again. <laughs> Running into, luckily it was just literally over the bridge on this side. So. Ah, right. That's a nice way to be reminded you're late. It isn't is, it? isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, and Chris, how has he coped with uh, the language? Chris, bless him, did go to one of the schools in our neighborhood and ask if the teachers would teach him Malayalam. Yes. So he went for three classes, but I think the method of instruction didn't quite work for him because they started with the writing and he wanted, I think, to more speak. just to learn how to communicate. Yeah. So he, he understands more and more words each, each day, 
but he can't he can't communicate yet right in Malayalam so Malayalam isn't on Duolingo yet is it <laughs> no no I don't think so but there is this really wonderful American woman who teaches Malayalam on YouTube okay it's fantastic so the choices have led you in such a wonderful or your choices have led you on such a wonderful journey through life so far to take you to this to this point and um, you're back in London for a month or so your choice is actually to move all your stuff over there stuff sorry furniture and belongings yeah yeah <laughs> um, and that's a really defining step as well it's very um, kind of permanent permanent yes very positive kind of like this is this is the place where I'm going to be how do, how does that make you feel I mean having made that choice <laughs> right now it just feels like work to be honest <laughs> more work getting quotes figuring out what I can take seeing the budget is too high so cutting cutting things down deciding what to leave so it just feels like work but yeah you're right behind all that there's this sense that this home that we dreamt of when we made this big leap into the unknown is actually coming close to completion yes um, and that soon we'll be in in the next chapter which is making space for people to come and be interested in this environment with us yes but yes. also people who want to come and be interested in their own thing so we'd love to have retreats for painters or writers you know it's a beautiful place just to to retreat and do your own thing yes, yes or to experience and understand this completely new world if that's what you choose to do yes yeah, yes I'm so excited for this project for you because it's just been because I heard so much about it before it started and your dreams of it and I, I think actually you came in and showed show me the architect's design at one I point. I think I did yes you're right it's changed completely from that because <laughs> we ran out of yeah, I mean, you know, this this whole thing has happened in big measure because of the generosity of my parents. Right. Talking about choices. Yeah. If they hadn't said, use our money. Right. I don't think Chris and I would have been able to afford it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. bless them. They've, they've made it all possible. Yes. That's amazing. Well, big thanks to your parents. Yes. It's going overhead now. Helicopter. Right. It's always noisy in London, yes, isn't it? Is, it's it? London for you. Yeah. <laughs> And the sun's now gone in. Yeah. So, my next choice is, do I choose to come over and visit you in the monsoon time or after <laughs> the monsoon time? I, I will uh, consider that choice, those choices, <laughs> and make it shortly. Let's start with the non-monsoon. Yes, I think so. That, that is my instinct to start with non-monsoon. Yeah, and then once you, once you become familiar with the place and uh, it, it just it becomes more welcoming then yeah. I think the fear of the monsoon would be yeah. easier to take that would be my suggestion but you're very welcome in the monsoon as well. all right okay but, we, but actually you know I think this leads us to another choice that Chris and I have to make which is how confident do we feel to host guests in the monsoon okay because yes. I think the responsibility is much higher like I said, if something goes wrong, if there's a medical emergency, we need to get down the hill in a rush. Yes. Um, a, you don't know if a tree has fallen and blocked the road, and if it has, then it takes a while before someone comes along to clear that. B, are there elephants about? Because they, there are wild elephants in the area, and they go wandering in the monsoon. Right. Apparently, because the winds are so high that they know that trees will fall, so they go into areas which are clearer okay. of trees. 
Wow, isn't um, that such an instinctive thing, isn't it? Th- this is the this is what people That's tell nature. us locally. Yeah. Who knows whether that is what's okay. in the elephant's <laughs> mind, really? How do we, how can we ever know? But it's a very compelling story, it is, isn't yes. it? <laughs> so, so we have to decide. Okay. Do we feel confident enough to host people in the monsoon? There are power cuts. Mm-hmm. Normally, you spend about 10, 12 days every year during the monsoon when the power lines go because electric posts fall down or trees fall on cables and then it's impossible for people to come and repair them. So you have ba- a backup generator, do we you? We have solar. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think we'll be fine for basic needs during the monsoon. Yes. But, you know, if we have guests, then we want to make sure that they have uh, enough power to fuel all their needs, like computers and you know charging stuff so um, I think we need to just consider all of that in the round and make sure that we feel confident yeah to host of people up on our hill yes yes in the monsoon rather than just bunkering down and surviving yeah. it somehow <laughs> ourselves and also I suppose another big choice is whether you decide that you want to be there all the time or whether in fact yeah the pull towards the city at some sometimes yeah is necessary for your um, sanity or yeah. not maybe maybe you don't need that but perhaps you do i think that's a good point in the summer months which is now yeah in india it's actually quite challenging to leave the place because of the garden okay it needs watering it needs maintenance <laughs> yeah without that it it will just die and that would absolutely break my heart so right now i have these uh, a wonderful wonderful couple who i have so much affection and respect for they have just taken that entire burden off me so they come at least yeah. four times a week okay quite often five or six times a week they'll water they weed and I speak to them now and then but my mum right now is uh, doing that kind of management for me so she speaks okay. to them pretty okay. much every day to make sure that if they have any questions it's all being answered and Chris makes sure that they are paid and yes yes I think they can communicate in very basic terms Chris okay. and this couple um, because they speak only Malayalam, which right. he doesn't. But that's my mother's role yes. as supervisor. <laughs> so in the summer months, it's difficult for us to get away. But yeah, we have wondered whether we would do well to leave the place in the monsoon. Yeah. So I don't know. I think we'll just have to live with how things are for the next couple of years and then decide what mm. feels like a good annual pattern. And of course, Chris's family is here. Yes. Yes, so. so I'm sure he'd want to spend time with them as of well. Of course. Um, and hopefully so they'll, they'll want to come out and visit. I'm sure they yes. will. I'm sure they yeah, will. Yeah. And meantime, you've also, you have been carrying on doing some work. I have. Um, and you were, you've been in various parts of the world, well, but mainly from working from home, which is the beauty of being able to work from home, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's a, uh, particularly somewhere so isolated as you've, as you've are uh, but to be able to still carry on and and, um, bring the money in as well is really important isn't it so uh, some days you know I cannot believe just how lucky I am to be able to sit in this astonishingly beautiful hilltop in a gorgeous gorgeous space and do the kind of work that gives me a lot of satisfaction yeah Yeah. I'm not sure I understand how life can get very much better than that really yeah Um, and I quite like not being in an office environment I like the flexibility of working from home yes yeah Um, I like the people that I work with I like the fact also that it's short engagements you know you're not 
I don't know what that says about me really, but <laughs> <laughs> I quite like not being committed to 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 work things in a very long and indefinite time period. Yeah. yeah. It suits me that there are these projects where you know what difference you want to make. You have a time scale in which to make that difference. Yeah. And then your role in it is done. Yes, yes. So the past couple of years have been very good work-wise. I've got four or five consultancies that are fairly reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do my meetings. I've done two-day video trainings sitting up on my hill. So, you know, there was no electricity when we got there. So one of our challenges was to bring electricity up the hill, which we did. Okay. Um, and when dealing we with the authorities for all of this as well, were they very uh, open to the fact that you were building on the hill? Or was there some resistance to you and, and, and because of their view mm. on nature and were you changing yeah. the environment? Yeah, it is, there is scrutiny of that. We border protected forest land. Mm-hmm. Um, which is lovely in many ways because you know that that will never get built on. Yes. But there's a much higher level of scrutiny. Okay. So you have to get permission from the forestry department to build. Right. And that took us a long time. Yeah. A very long time. So the first six months of our lives in India were spent in repeated visits to the forestry office. Okay. Um, and you know they would stick files in our faces and say do you see the date on that file that was five years ago they submitted it and it's still not cleared and i thought oh my lord you're saying we might have to wait five years before we can start building but anyway i think we built enough relationships and um and and there there were no bribes involved okay which i'm so delighted about because that was one of the things everyone wonders about do you think it was because you speak the language and it made a difference? No, no, because the people who give bribes are the people who live there. Yeah. So they are the locals. Yeah, of course. In fact, it could be because we are not from there that we weren't asked for bribes. Right. Is what some people say. But in any case, I think the institutions have generally been very kind to us. Yeah. The electricity folks were stunningly efficient. We put our money down. I, I mobilized for a few of the other people who are going to be building there soon to also pitch in so yes. that it became affordable, the cost of bringing electricity up the hill. Right. And they were great. They sent us the money. I went and deposited it with the electricity folks. And the next day, they were on site with oh, the posts. Everything was done in three days. Wow. It was stunning. That's it was incredible, such a isn't merry it? band of seven men who worked very, very hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we have broadband as well. Yeah. So we can Netflix on the hill. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you've it not, really is having in, our cake and eating it too. <laughs> you're in touch with the outside world. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said to be disconnected or unconnected, but there's also a lot to be said to be connected to. Yeah. And it's, it's getting that balance right, isn't it? And um, Netflix will get will probably get you through a monsoon season, possibly, exactly. if the electricity doesn't go. No, but we have solar. Oh, so you do. So, so we fine. don't lose power at all. Brilliant. And Chris is great at managing all of that. <laughs> So he makes sure, you know, he's he's very rugged that way. So if there's a problem, he's he's on it. Much braver than me to wow. get out onto the roof or wherever he needs to go to sort out the problem. Wow, it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. And just to wind up, so this has been a really interesting discussion, all about choices and where the choices that we make lead us uh, and define us, actually. And and I think probably one of the final questions I'd like to ask you is is how much you believe the choices that you've made in your life to date 
have perhaps defined and that redefined you to be either consciously or unconsciously another person. Hmm, I have no idea how to answer that. But it makes me think of another question you asked me, which is what is one of the biggest things I've learned through this process. And I think one of those things which goes back to how I've defined all these choices that I've made in my life yeah. is that I've, I've realized it's okay to, to not always be able to control things around you. Mm -hmm. I think I've learned more to let go of some things. Um, which is not to say that I don't want a sense of agency in my own life, which I very much do. Yes. But I think a lot of the most interesting experiences in my time in Kerala have just been unanticipated. Things that if you had asked me to do a timeline and a flowchart for where, what would be happening when, yes. I wouldn't have predicted that that's what would happen, like the garden. Yes. You know, yes. These are not things, I didn't have a scheme or a drawing for the garden when I started. Okay. It was just, let me start by making this one path. Okay. And then see what happens from there. Yeah. And it's a bit like my life really, because I made that one path with this JCB type thing. It was just a slope. There was, it was filled with lemongrass. There was nothing on it. So I got a JCB and we, I said, just make a path here. And then from that path, loads of other paths emerged. Okay. And bit of an I, organic I process really yeah and it's really not a bad mirror of my life <laughs> interesting it really has been just a series of parts which has opened up partly through my volition and things i've wanted to do and actively sought to do but other parts which have just emerged because it looked right like there was a fork possibility there and it just it just felt right it looked right yeah yeah so somehow, my life is a bit like that garden. How not? That's a lovely analogy. I definitely have to come now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, well, I should, maybe that's what I should do with the garden. Chart it in various phases of, of your life? my life yes. and Chris's life. Reflect it in the plants that you grow. Yeah, and that's the things that lie idea. buried there, like our lovely cat pocket oh. will be buried in the garden. Yeah. Definitely. So there's, um, it's a very new garden, you know, but I think we both have so much emotion invested in the garden, much more than in the house, which, Interesting, is, isn't it? which is an older project yes, and a yes. more predicted project. Yes. That's but we grow our own vegetables and you'll have to come and see all of that now. Yeah. And I take it you do grow lemongrass then as well? We have some, yeah. lots of wild lemongrass on one side of the slope still. Mm -hmm. Lots of tea plants. Yes. And I've planted coffee and lots of flowering trees. Fantastic. And daffodils. Yeah. Has it has it changed your the way you eat as well, living in India? Yes. A lot. I'm mostly vegetarian now. Okay. Um, in that, it just feels like the safer thing to buy yeah. vegetables. I'm, I'm not always sure how to source good meat. Mm -hmm. And I find that I actually don't mind at all. I don't miss meat. No. But I also find that when an option, when a choice is presented, when I go to a restaurant, for instance, yeah. I instinctively tend to think I should eat the meat. I'm not sure why that is. But I've discovered I love vegetarian food. And yeah. there's so much variety in Kerala vegetarian food. And I've learned to cook a lot of it. Right. 
So I cook sometimes for all the workers who are on site and that yeah. would mean making like 14 meals in one day, which I have amazed myself with yes, the ability that's to do. very impressive. <laughs> you have enough pans. <laughs> enough, yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah, I, I never thought I would do that level of work. I mean, bits of painting and such like, yeah. Yes. I yes. thought I would, I would end up doing that, but yes, this has impressed me. Okay. And they've eaten it, uncomplainingly, for the most part. Sometimes <laughs> they say, forget the chilli powder, can we have more salt? <laughs> <laughs> I think my cooking is a bit bland for local tastes. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next chapter will emerge when I get to India and see you there and be able to give a, f a full account Oh, from on the ground. <laughs> With but all the local sounds. All the local yes. sounds. I can't wait to, for all of that, definitely. Um, but in the meantime, for the podcast listeners, travelling in the world, when you choose to go somewhere, how do you choose where you want to go? In, in terms of most of my travel choices, to be honest, they've been made by work. So when I worked for the international NGO in London, that involved a lot of travel. That was probably the time in my life when I traveled the most. Right. Um, because I was supervising people who worked in various countries on projects in various countries. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so a lot of those travel choices were driven by work. But now I worry a bit more about the impact on the environment. Yes. So I think one of the choices in terms of travel is what's the least um, destructive way okay I can do this travel uh, yeah I mean I suppose one should be asking do I really need to do this travel at all and in the case of things like my Prague trip the answer clearly is no that was a pure I want to not I need to but yeah. I did it anyway yeah so there's a bit of guilt now tied into the idea of travel yes yes a consciousness that probably wasn't hasn't been a, yeah. um, in our awareness for a long time and, and yeah. until quite recently for sure it's yeah. good that it's there i think yeah for definitely. sure and i think soon we'll be living it much more definitely closely and consistently yeah thinking the, in which how we travel but yeah. for you going to india is obviously very difficult you, well you could take the boat <laughs> you could as my mother did just before the war, last yeah, boat gosh, out to India. That's right. And uh, without a convoy, and uh, but they got there. Took took them a, a while, but they got there. She was like four years old or something. Wow, that's a very <laughs> different kind of travel, yeah, isn't it? Definitely. And not one born of choice at all. No, <coughs> no, exactly. You know, I say all this about the guilt associated with travel, but at the same time, we do want people to come and visit us. And yeah. I think that would bring a lot of joy and pleasure to our lives. Yes. Because uh, I, Chris and I know that sharing it when people come to see the house and seeing their joy and their excitement their interest in the house it really just enhances the value of that place yes. so much for us yeah um, but when when you do come to visit we'll try and make that stay in the area as friendly to the environment yes as Good. possible fantastic that's for sure yeah we recycle everything and yeah there's a kind of local economy there of where you can take your cardboard carton so none of that gets into landfill brilliant so we yes. try and stay as conscious of that and I think that's something Chris is better at than I am yeah. for sure but we're working on it together good <laughs> and we use solar so yes. we try and use uh, eco-friendly 
energy options where it's possible. I think it's all good, good things, and and um, and also you're setting an example for people coming along after you who may be building in the area to think in the, along the same vein as well, which is you're sort of trailblazing. That would be good. Yeah, that would be good. And the other thing we've done is we harvest rainwater. Right. For our water needs, so we have yeah. a tank of about forty-two thousand liters. Okay, for the garden as well. The house. <laughs> yeah, the garden is a bit more of a challenge. Mm. As Chris keeps saying, and he's absolutely right, we need to get some drip irrigation system worked yeah. out because at the moment the way we water the garden is very wasteful. Right. Um, so that's that is a work in that's, progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the final question I have is that making the choice that you have to really change your life so dramatically and so drastically. Um, what advice would you give to others when they're making that choice to do something very, very different? Be realistic. Um, but at the same time, not afraid. Mm -hmm. There's something in the middle of those two, which I think is a sweet spot. Yes, yeah, yes. You know, I think if you over-consider, is this a good idea, is this a bad idea, you probably won't do very much. Yeah. Um, so there needs to be a bit of you which is ready to leap with some confidence into something. Yes. But at the same time, you need the confidence to know that if that turns out to be the wrong thing, you can walk your way back from okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Which is what I mean by be, be realistic. You need yes. to know you have that option. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, but I think the younger you are, the more risks you can take. Like mm -hmm. I did when I went to Geneva, blew up my life savings to do this MBA, which could have been an absolute disaster yeah but it wasn't and I don't think I stopped very long to consider do I have a way to walk this mistake back because yeah. I probably didn't <laughs> so I'm lucky it worked out but now I think this risk that I've taken this big choice we made yeah to go to India though we did leap without you know over considering it we do also know we have a way to walk back yes yeah. we did tell ourselves that if this goes wrong and we find out that this is really not working yeah we would come back and also you have the backing you know, your parents are right behind you in this exercise as well not yeah. exercise project should yeah. I say and and it's nice that they've embraced it with you as well in, in many senses of the way of the word absolutely yeah from being encouraging to to funding it yeah um, to just being really interested in yeah. in the process and coming and they came and stayed with us over covid yeah just down the hill not on our site but mm -hmm. but yeah. that was wonderful so they saw the building as yeah. it was growing little yes. by little by little fantastic yeah. and no, their, great their excitement them. is a real pleasure for us <laughs> yeah. okay well Shoba, my stomach's rumbling i'm sure yours is and i know you've cooked me lunch a lovely awaits. lunch and so i think we're going to end this here so thank you so much for your time thank to you, talk Emma. about your choices and and how those choices have got you to where you are in life and uh, look forward to seeing you in India but to all you podcast listeners out there I hope you've enjoyed this podcast with Shoba and have been inspired there'll be links in the show notes please look at travellingthrough.co.uk I'm on all the social media platforms um, do share do subscribe and please do leave a review if you have time because that helps this podcast to reach a wider audience and this is what this podcast is all about that my guests get to be heard by more people. But for now, enjoy the rest of your day. Have a good week. Take care and thanks for listening. So we made it back to the flat and uh, when I got here, I realised I had forgotten 
Jobert to ask you a very important question, which was around the subject of gender, which of course in India is a, is a very big question in itself. But specifically to you um, and, and your experience with it growing up in, in India and then consequently going back to live in India, how, how, has, um, how have you been affected by the gender question, as it were? How, how are you treated, I suppose, in, in, in India as a, or, or um, seen being a woman in, in India, both as a child and a teenager and, and then going back there again as a fully-fledged adult, shall we say? Shall we say? I think, I think, first of all, the gender question is alive everywhere in of the course, world. It's yes. not just India. So uh, when I left India, that was a big part of my concern about, you know, being a woman in America and then being a woman in the UK. So I think it is an issue all over the world. You're right. It has a particular kind of weight in India. And it did um, when I was growing up. You know, I lived there till I was 24. And from adolescence onwards, I would say that the the weight of sexual harassment has been always present as a school girl, kind of from secondary school onwards, um, men making unwanted comments, touching, groping, uh, exposing themselves to you, and this is when we're in really? school uniforms. All of that has happened. Yes. Um, and it, it means that in everyday life you have to make certain choices, like how do you walk to the bus stop. When I was going to college, um, so this is when I was in my about seven, let's say 17 years old or so, um, there was a five-minute walk from my house to the bus stop. A straight road, very simple to do. But halfway through there, there was a boys' college. So walking from my house to the bus stop took an enormous amount of bravery because you knew you would get catcalls, you would get whistles, you would get comments, you would get groped, all sorts of things. So eventually, I just kind of lost the will to do that, to mm. have this battle happening every day, yeah, just to yes. get to the bus stop. So I began to walk a very long way around, which means that a five-minute walk became a 15-minute walk, mm -hmm. simply because of my gender. Um, I think one makes those kinds of choices here as well, as in, you know, if you're a yeah. woman coming back home late at night, you have to be particularly vigilant, you, you learn the things to look out for. It was just that that was present in India, maybe a bit more all-pervasive for, mm -hmm. for me anyway as a young woman. Um, so certainly when I was considering going back to India, that was definitely one thing I was really worried about. Would I be able to survive those kinds of experiences again? But I think two things have worked in my favor. One is that I'm older. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 56, I am clearly no longer a target for sexual harassment or interest which is great i really love that yeah which means i'm left alone but the other piece of luck i think has been landing in kerala which right. amongst all the indian states is amongst the most progressive ones you know mm -hmm. um, girls have a very high rate of literacy mm -hmm. so very high school enrollment very low school dropout and there's pretty much parity for men and women there. And that's the only state in India that you can say that of. Um, and I know education is one thing, but sexual harassment is another. But it seems to be, in my experience anyway, a slightly safer place for women to be, which is not to say that sexual harassment doesn't happen. I think no. it does, like in other states of India and in other countries in the world. Of course, but, yeah. but possibly less. Right. Yeah. Um, from my experience, a lot less. 
-hmm. But I think being a young woman in Kerala, the experience would still be possibly not as easy as mine as an older woman. I've, I've felt I've felt a lot less anxious about being a woman, even when I'm walking along fairly deserted stretches of road. Right. I don't feel that sense of constant anxiety, which I often carry with me, particularly in India. Mm. For some reason, that's been really liberating mm -hmm, in many mm -hmm. ways. I've really enjoyed that. Well, I hope you enjoyed this little soundbite extra that I've tagged on to the end of uh, my conversation with Shoba because we realised that this was actually quite an important point to make, even though it was made in, in quite a concise way. As always, please do give this podcast a star rating. Please do subscribe to the podcast share with your friends to ensure that these podcast episodes reach a wider audience, as this is what this podcast is all about, to inspire, motivate and hopefully help you to make new choices throughout your 2023. You can subscribe to my newsletter via my website travellingthrough.co.uk. But for now, take care and as always, thanks for listening to the Travelling Through Podcast.